Open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16. We are making our way through the life of Abraham, and I want to jump right into the text in a minute. I'll kind of do some recapping as we go. Uh, But this is an interesting chapter in the story of Abraham. In fact, you might think of it as Act 2. So Act 1, Genesis 12 through 15, God's made a promise to this man, Abram. Uh, His faith has already been tested a little bit, but for the most part, the last few chapters in this story, in the book of Genesis, Abram has been nailing it. I mean, his faith has been strong. It's been by all God's power, but he's been trusting him. He's picked up his sword when God asked him to do that. He's opened his hands when God asked him to do that, and he's been on a roll, and we're going to hit 16, which is the rock-bottom place of this story. So if any of you have struggled ever in your faith, (laughs) hello, here, (laughs) you may identify with Abram. The other interesting thing about chapter 16 is you'll get to meet in depth some other characters besides Abraham. So he's been in the forefront, he's been in the center through the story, he's going to be in the background uh, in this chapter, and you're going to get to know Sarai, his wife, a little better, and Sarai's servant, Hagar, you'll get to know her better, and you're going to learn some things from them. In fact, I'll tell you right now, my goal is to help you identify with one or more characters in this story. I found myself identifying with all three. And if you can find yourself in the text this morning, then the lesson that emerges from the text, and it's clear at the end of the chapter, we'll get to it, there's a clear lesson in this passage. This lesson can be for you this morning, but I think only to the degree that you're able to find yourself in the the characters, in the narrative, in the story. And there is so much humanity in Genesis chapter 16. And, And my job, almost as a tour guide, is to just point it out to you and then help you enter in your story into this bigger story. So let's jump in. We'll spend most of our time in verses 1 through 6, and then we'll wrap up the sermon with 7 through 16, which gives the big idea and the main lesson from this text. So let's start Genesis chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Just pause right there. We'll, We'll pick it up in a few minutes. I want you to see a pattern in the Abraham story. A promise is given and then attention is presented. So think back, Genesis 12, God promises Abram the land. In the very next verse, it says there was a famine in the land. And so the question is, what will Abram do? Will he stay in the land and trust God to provide for him? Or will he leave the land he was just been promised? Well, he left and he went where? He went to Egypt. And he was afraid when he got to Egypt. So what did he do? He told his wife, Sarai, who's very beautiful. He said, Sarah, I want you to lie for me so they don't kill me to get to you. I I want you to tell them that we're not husband and wife. We're we're only brother and sister. So Sarai went along with this plan. Abram's life was spared, but God revealed the scheme. God revealed the plan. Pharaoh became aware of it, sent them packing, sent them back out, back to the land of Canaan, which is where God had intended them to be. And you'd hope that Abram would learn this message that when God tests your faith, you can count on him to come through. You don't have to take matters into your own hands. He's not learned the lesson yet, yet. Uh, We're going to see how Abram and Sarai's new plan unfolds and the devastation that it will wreak 
into their family and into their descendants. And we'll see how that's going to play out. But one more quick observation about the first three verses. Notice the repetition. The word Egyptian shows up two times. Once in verse 1, once in verse 3. The author wants you to know that Hagar was Egyptian. That matters for two reasons. Number one, it takes your mind back to the incident that happened in Egypt. And that would have been the place most, most likely that Abram would have obtained Hagar as a servant for his wife, Sarai. But the second reason you need to know Hagar's Egyptian is Egypt was the enemy of the nation of Israel later on. So when Moses was originally writing this account down and formally uh, making this account, he would have been writing to the original audience that would have just been enslaved for hundreds of years by the nation of Egypt. So you can imagine these early Hebrews reading this, you know, after Moses had written it down or Moses teaching it to them. And they're thinking to themselves, surely an Egyptian was not our great, great, great grandmother. Surely the nation of Israel was not started by half Egyptian blood. Surely this can't be God's plan for Sarai to give Hagar to Abram. And indeed, it was not God's plan. And we'll see how and why that was. Let's continue reading verse 4. He, Abram, went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. I want us to leave the story at this point of tension. In fact, I think that verse you just read is probably the lowest point in Abraham's life. Things are a disaster Now, why do I say that? Think about this. Abram finally has a child, and it's a son. Now, he doesn't know it's a son yet. You know it's a son. I know it's a son. God knows it's a son. And that unborn child has been thrown out into the wilderness apart from his clan. Remember, Abram was the patriarch. His job was to protect those that are in his household. And his own wife, Sarai, because of a conflict in their relationship that, by the way, we'll talk about this later, goes back to Egypt, I believe, Sarai comes to Abram all angry, and what does Abram do? Well, do, do whatever you think is right in, in, in your eyes, Sarai. And she treats her so poorly that she drives her out into the wilderness, Sarai does. Now, look at this from Hagar's perspective. She obviously thought she was going to be better off risking the elements out on her own than staying with Sarai. Things must have been pretty bad for her. Now, think about this from Sarai's perspective. She had a plan. Her plan turned against her so badly, so much, that she was willing to lose this close, personal, intimate servant of hers. So bitter, so angry, so hurt, so wounded inside. And we'll talk about Sarai more in a minute. That she drives this woman away. Things are bad. This is the point in the story of Abraham where I say, God, how are you going to put the pieces back together? How are you going to make this all work? Abram's presumed heir and his second wife lives are in danger his relationship with his first wife Sarai 
is obviously very poor. I want us to zoom in on each of these three characters. There's something we can learn from each of them. And I want you, as we look at these characters in depth, to ask yourself the question, how does this person look like me? Let's talk first about Sarai. We get to really meet her for the first time. Up till now, we've just heard glimpses of Sarai. Uh, In chapter 16, you get to know her personality a little bit. It's obviously not a very flattering picture. At least this snapshot of Sarai is not very flattering. She tends to blame everyone but herself. The first person she blames is God. Look at verse 2. Behold, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Now, I want to point a couple things out about that statement. Number one, it's true, right? It's a statement of fact. God chose to keep her womb closed, and later he will open it. God's in charge of life and death. We all acknowledge that. For some of you, that's a hard truth to handle, even as you're dealing with your own struggles right now. So it is a statement of fact. God has prevented me. And yet, there is something going else underneath, going on underneath Sarai's heart. You kind of get the impression of, she's saying to Abram, look, God has forced our hand Look, God has forced me, backed me into a corner of doing something that I would normally never consider doing. I'm going to give you my maid, Hagar. Now, here's the thing about that. I want you to know this was culturally acceptable at that time. But just because it was culturally acceptable does not mean it was God's plan. That means it was God's best. So what essentially Sarai does in this instance is she says, God's not showing up for me, therefore I will make it happen over here. My maid, my husband, my child, my future. Let's do this. Now, I think this is a peek into my own heart. Maybe a peek into your heart. In other words, when things are going well in my life, I tend to take some of the credit But when things are not going well, the first person I blame is God. And the next person I blame is is, is whoever is closest to me at the time. And this is what Sarai does. She blames God and then she blames Abram. Verse 5 always interests me. I'm like, Sarai, this is your idea. And yet she says to Abram, she says, may the wrong done to me be on you, right? It's your fault, in, in essence, is what she's saying. May the Lord judge between you and me, Abram. The only justification I can have in my mind for how she could possibly blame Abram is she's essentially asking her husband to put the servant in the servant's place, right? She's gotten cocky, Abram. Now that she's conceived, she's treating me poorly. I'm still in charge. I'm still her mistress. She's not your real wife. I'm your real wife. I'm your first wife. Put her in your place. This is your fault, the way she's treating me. I think that's probably what's going on below the surface of the text, now, before we get um, too harsh with Sarai, and, and for sure she's, she's not, uh, she doesn't look beautiful inside in this text anyway, uh, I want us to show her a little grace. And let me explain. I, I want you to see another side of Sarai. In that culture, she was bearing the ultimate stigma. An aging woman, who, by the way, she was probably about 75 at this stage. An aging woman with no children. Uh, that, that's hard today, but it's nothing like it would have been back then. Right? Her very identity and value as a woman was based on her ability to bear children. Not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that's how that culture viewed it. 
Not only that, but as far as we can tell, she did not choose to come to Canaan. God did not show up to her. He didn't speak to her. She's been loyal to her husband, even to the place of lying to save his skin. Now, what happened in Egypt, I want you to see this. She literally gave up her body to save her husband. That's what happened in Egypt. Her husband asked her to do that. She said, okay. She's received this promise, but it's been mediated through her husband, through Abraham. He would have come to her and said, guess what? God's going to make us so numerous that, that it'll be, we can't even count them like the stars in the sky. And here she is, 75 years old, 10 years into this crazy trip into a land that she didn't choose to go to, right? And God hasn't done anything. He hasn't shown up. You have some grace for this woman. I have a lot for her. Some of you can identify with Sarai at this stage in your life. You look around and you see your reality is nothing like you'd hoped. Maybe there's something you feel like you desperately need, desperately want, desperately just desire. Would God withhold that from me? Does he not love me? Why does he only show up to other people? Why is it that I look around and these other people are being blessed and they're getting what I so desperately want, my own servant? Not only that, but you've probably been deeply wounded by other people in your life, in your story. It's easy to become cold and clenched up inside. It's easy to lash out sometimes when your guard is down. Sarah had been wounded by her own husband. In her desperation, she keeps digging a bigger hole. And this is what we're seeing in chapter 16. We're seeing a woman who is desperate for God to come through on his promise and she's starting to believe he may not do it. And all of us have been there. And so what you do when you're there is you tend to start controlling everything that you can control. And in this case, Sarai teaches us a lesson that when we grab on and try to control things that God has not given us to control, we end up making a mess. I remember when I was eight years old, I really wanted something. It was chocolate chip cookies one afternoon. I love chocolate chip cookies. And so my younger brother and I decided since mom wasn't around and our older sister Kimberly was, was upstairs, we didn't want to bug her, we were going to make chocolate chip cookies ourselves. So my eight-year-old self and my brother, who's six years old, uh, said, well, we can do this. We know the recipe is on that yellow Nestle Toll House chocolate chip bag. So we grabbed that down from the cabinet and we started reading the recipe. And I was calling out the orders to my brother and he was putting everything in this big bowl and mixing it up. And it looked perfect. I mean, it had that nice little light, light tan color, you know, and the chocolate chips went in and were looking good. We we're mixing it around. And I started getting a little bit cocky and I thought, man, I'm good at this. Uh, it, the only thing that could be better than chocolate chip cookies would be chocolate, chocolate chip cookies. So I asked my brother to go grab the can of Hershey's chocolate syrup that was in the refrigerator and got that bad boy out, poured it in there. Now about half of you in the room right now are thinking, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and the other half of you are like, oh no, that's never going to work. I was in the first camp, right? So what, what's wrong with that? It's going to be delicious. It looked delicious. It smelled delicious. We spooned those bad boys out on the, the cookie sheet, popped it in the oven, went out and threw the football. But, but we remembered to set the timer for the right time, the temperature for the right time. The timer went off. We ran back in, so excited about those cookies, opened up the oven. It was a mushy soup of chocolate mess on the cookie sheet. Now, fortunately, it was one of those cookie sheets with the little lip on the edge. Otherwise, we might have started a fire, you know. But, but, but I, I was optimistic, and I pulled that out, and, and I tried to act cool, you know, for my brother. And I said, Brian, we'll just 
cut this into brownies. <laughs> so let's let, it, let's let it sit. Let's let it get, get cool, cooled off. It's too hot right now. And then we'll come back in in a little while and we'll just cut it into brownies. We'll have brownies instead of cookies. Sounds great. So I went back outside, threw the football around, came back in later on. It was cool and tried to cut into that thing. It was like concrete. It was like a brick. I mean, I could not. We're like chiseling it away. So I said, Brian, get that big fork over there. You know, the kind of fork you use for like, you know, carving the turkey and stuff and the big. So I got the big fork, started pounding on the cookie sheet. Boom, boom. Trying to make a dent in this little tiny little chips of the chocolate would sort of like come off. But it mostly it was just stuck. So I said, grab that big steak knife over there. So he grabbed the steak knife, pounded on the steak knife. Meanwhile, the fork was bending. The steak knife was bending. The pan was ruined. So at the end of this thing, I said, all right, okay, we're just going to put the ruined pan, the ruined fork, the ruined steak knife back in the sink for mom to clean up. <laughs> now, this is what life is like. Sometimes we think we know what we're doing. We make these messes of things. When, when, when we try to control, when we try to say, this is what I need, right? Listen, it's not wrong to want to have a good life. It's not wrong to desire things. It's not wrong for your heart to cry out. What's wrong is when you say, if God will not give me, I will take. Far better, far better to yield control to the one who actually knows what he's doing. I know this is a hard issue for some of you even right now in this room. It's hard to know, well, what would God want us to do and not want us to do? I'm not saying that you take no action, just sit back. There are times that God would lead you to a course of action that would be his desire. But this was not the case. How do we know? How do we know this is not the case? There's no indication in this text that God told them to do this, that God affirmed this decision. In fact, the opposite, as we're going to see as we keep reading. Don Anderson is a Bible scholar. He wrote a little book on the life of Abraham. The, the, the title of the book is, is worth the book. And the title is this, Delay is Not Denial. Did you hear that? Delay is not denial. This is what he says about Sarai. He says, It's a shame that Sarai had not comprehended the fact that her infertility could be used by the Lord to put her in a place of dependence on him so that fruit could be born in her life. Let's look at Abram. The most striking change in the narrative in chapter 16 from previous chapters, as I mentioned already, is that Abram's now in the background. He's not in the foreground. The rest of the story, Abram's in the foreground, but now he's remarkably passive. That's not good. He was called to be the patriarch. He was responsible for this family, for their well-being. Hagar was his wife. Her unborn child was his unborn child. And for my money, the most tragic moment in the entire long life of Abraham, the father of our faith, is right here in verse 6 when he relinquishes Hagar over to the control of his hurting, wounded, desperate, bitter wife. And he says to Sarai, Do to her what is good in your sight. Make note that when Hagar leaves, there's no indication that the patriarch Abram goes after her to save her. Now, where have we seen this story in Genesis before? 
Where have we seen a man's wife see something that looks good to her and she grasps onto something outside of God's design, outside of God's plan, and hands something to her husband and he sort of passively watches all of this knowing I've got to believe in the back of his mind this can't be God's plan, but then he receives it. He takes it. Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve. The author of Genesis makes an intentional reference to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. How do we know this? He uses the exact same words. Listen to the verbs in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Eve took the fruit, gave it to her husband. Listen to the verbs in 16.3. Sarai took Hagar, same word, gave her to her husband, same word. Those are the only two places in the whole Old Testament where those two verbs are paired together and constructed in that same way. It's a deliberate reference. The author is going out of his way to say, just as, just as Abram sat back while, while Eve took that fruit and he consumed it, Abram's sitting back here. He's taking the offering from his wife that is outside of God's plan and he's receiving it. Both men received, both men consumed, both men went outside of God's plan for them. Men in particular. Do not miss the devastation that comes when a leader is called to be in the game and he's sitting on the sidelines. Men and women, those of you who God has called to lead in various ways, your families, your workplaces, your neighbors, if he's called you to lead, lead. It's not up to you ultimately what happens, but if God wants to use you as an instrument for his plan like he chose Abram, don't sit back. In my opinion, and I can't prove this, but I think some of Abram's passivity goes to the incident in Egypt. In other words, I can imagine the guilt and shame he was bearing for what he did to his wife. I can imagine him having this conversation in his mind even as Sarai comes to him with this scheme that may not feel quite right to Abram. I don't think this is right for me to go to your maid. And and yet in in his mind, Abram must have been thinking, but how can I lead my wife, the one that I betrayed? How can I tell her to wait for God's provision when I was the one that went outside of God's provision and I involved her in my scheme and she went along with it to protect my skin and I see her hurt and I see her pain and I just want her to be happy. Do you see how a leader becomes passive? You see, I think Abram was carrying out of Egypt more than wealth and possessions and servants and animals. He was carrying with him a burden of a broken, guilt-ridden relationship with his wife that he did not know how to undo. And and then you fast forward to Genesis 16 and you you see what happens. Last character, Hagar. Let's look at her. Let's zoom in on her life. Interestingly, she'll end up being the main character of this chapter, a lowly maidservant. Now, a maidservant was different than a slave, but she still had no choice in what her mistress and her master asked her to do. Uh, Sarai would have been a little bit like Anna in Downton Abbey. All right, Downton Abbey fans in the room, you don't have to raise your hand. 
So Anna is the personal servant of Mary Crawley. And so those of you, you don't know what we're talking about. That's okay. Mar- so, so Anna helps her get dressed. You know, she, she, she does errands for her. She even like helps her with like, you know, some, some things that, that only she and, and Mary know about. I mean, this was a close, personal, trusted, intimate relationship. They were probably close friends. It definitely would have been a relationship of trust. And make no mistake, Sarai and Abram victimize Hagar. She is a victim in this story. There's no ifs, buts around that. She had no say in the matter, according to the norms and the mores of that culture. No thought is given to her desires or dreams that maybe she should have a husband who will love her first and foremost and and, and for her not to be some secondary overlooked wife of some other man. No thought or concern given to to maybe some other male servant in Abram's household that may have desired to be her husband. No thought or concern given, as far as we can tell, to her dreams for her life, her desires for her life, that maybe she didn't want to be Abram's husband. And for me, this is why this passage is so hard to read. Sarai and Abram, okay, this Abram, hero of our faith, and his wife Sarai, Treat her as nothing more than a piece of property be, property, to be used for her reproductive ability. She was a person. She was like you and me. She was a woman created in the image of God. Some of you can identify with Hagar. Things have been taken away from you that you had no control over. Perhaps you've been taken advantage of. Perhaps you've been a victim of relationships of power where your humanity was tread upon by someone else's self-interest. Perhaps, and I know we can all identify with this, other people's hurt and woundedness and brokenness has been unfairly cast upon you and you have been forced to bear their pain, their hurt, their brokenness, their woundedness. And it's not fair. It's not. Now, Hagar is certainly not presented as blameless in the story. In fact, her humanity seeps out a little bit in verse 4. It says she despised her mistress, this, this woman that had forced her to do this. And now she'd conceived, and I can imagine as she started feeling that, that life growing inside of her, she's thinking to herself, I will not give this child up to my mistress. This is my child. She despised her mistress, I would say, not without reason. The end of verse 6, we find Hagar in a very desperate, dangerous situation. Literally, her life is in danger. Uh, her survival, you see, depended on the protection of a family clan, a family patriarch. There was no police force in that society. There was no military. There was no governmental assistance. There was no welfare. There were no safety nets. If she left the family clan, she was out on her own, and she was going to be at the mercy of whatever passerby decided he was stronger than her and had an interest in her, or whatever wild beast would come along that would be desperately hungry enough to try to injure or kill her. Where we pick up the story in verse 7, Hagar is in danger. You might even say she's essentially as good as dead, she and her child. But I want you to see what happens in this story. 
because through six verses of chapter 16, God has remained silent. And that is about to change. And I want you to see how he shows up and who he shows up for. Let's read verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. By the way, Shur was between Canaan and Egypt. You see, Hagar was trying to go back to her homeland, Egypt. He said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you're with child and you will bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Take your eyes and glance back up at the top of verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her. I can imagine that this poor woman wanted nothing to do with Sarai and Abram's God at this point in the story. I wouldn't blame her. And yet this God shows up and finds her. The angel of the Lord is a mysterious phrase translated from the Hebrew. There's something more going on here than just an angel of the Lord. This isn't just one of God's many messengers. This is a particular messenger. In fact, this phrase in Hebrew that's translated the angel of the Lord appears numerous times in the Old Testament and many scholars believe it's actually a reference to an appearance of God himself. Right? God, of course, as we know, as scripture has been revealed to us, is triune Trinity, and so more than likely what's happening is God himself appears to Hagar. This is a pre-incarnated appearance of Jesus Christ. So if you buy that, and I do, I think that that's likely who this angel of the Lord was. And by the way, she addresses this man as if he's God himself. He addresses her as if he is God himself. That's some of the reasons why scholars believe this. If that is true, then it's not going too far to say it this way. Jesus found Hagar. Now here's a marginalized woman, lowest of the low in that society, a servant. She had been abused. She had been forced to do something that was not her decision. And then she had been treated so harshly that she had been cast away from the protection of the family. Her very life is in danger. And God shows up because in his perspective, she is worth showing up for. And she is worth speaking to. And she is worth saving. And she is worth making a promise to. And she is worth being called by name. Don't, don't, don't miss that. Hagar, verse 8. 
you might be interested to know that this is the only occasion in all of the ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity addresses a woman by her name. Hagar. And not only that, but God allows this woman to give him a name. That's actually what's going on in verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And then that quote is a translation of a Hebrew name that means, you are a God who sees. She's the only woman in the Bible who has the privilege of giving God a name. You see what's going on here? Reflect for a moment that this is God's heart throughout the scriptures. His heart is for the outcast, for the desperate, for the marginalized, for anyone who calls out in desperate cries, save me. His heart is for the orphan, the widow, the impoverished, those who are treated unjustly. The list goes on and on. And here in Genesis chapter 16, he reveals himself. He shows up to this abused, pregnant maidservant, Hagar. And notice how Hagar responds. She responds in worship. She calls upon the name of this God who appeared to her. I want you to remember something as we track through this whole story of Abraham. You need to follow the worship. What do I mean by that? Remember that that phrase in the Bible? We've come to it several times already in the story. It says, Abram called upon the name of the Lord, or so-and-so called upon the name of the Lord. That, That means he was worshiping. He was worshiping. Now, who is worshiping in this text? It's not Abram. It's not Sarai. It's the Egyptian Hagar. And as you look throughout this whole narrative in Genesis about anytime someone's worshiping, anytime someone's calling upon the name of the Lord, good things are happening. Now, that doesn't mean that, that magically everything changes and you know, all their troubles are done and God grants their wish. It's not like some magic genie bottle. But what you can count on is anytime you see this phrase in the scripture that God is responding to anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and he responds to this woman as she calls upon the name of the Lord. And we are talking today about Hagar, the lowly maidservant of Sarai. Now, as is often the case in the Hebrew narrative, and this is how I want to wrap up this message, the names carry the message. The names carry the lesson or the big idea. So whenever you're reading Old Testament narrative story, right, and and it says they named him such and such, key into the translation of that name because often that's the moral of the story, of that part of the story. And that is certainly the case here. We actually have multiple names. The first name we hear of is Ishmael. You know what Ishmael means? God hears. So he shows up to this poor woman and he says that this this child in your belly will be called God hears to remind you that I am the God who hears your affliction. I heard you crying out, Hagar. And then note, and we mentioned this already, the name that Hagar gives to God, God sees. You are a God who sees. And then she names the well. I want to translate this for you. It's actually a difficult Hebrew phrase. Bear lahai roi, verse 14. Roughly translated, it means you are the God. Oh no, it means I have seen the God who sees me. I have seen the God who sees me. Isn't that beautiful? God hears. God sees. That's the lesson of Genesis 16. Now, who needed this lesson? Certainly, Hagar did. 
But she wasn't the only person in this story that needed this lesson, that needed to be reminded that God hears, God sees. Uh, Note the angel tells her to go back and to submit to Sarai. I can't imagine how difficult that would have been for this poor woman. I, I imagine her going back to the camp would have likely been days' journey back. She falls prostrate in front of Sarai, her mistress. It would have taken all the humility that God could plant inside of her heart. But then she tells them the story of God showing up. And she gets to the names. And Abram and Sarai would not have missed the lesson of the story. Yahweh hears. Yahweh sees. And I imagine as she says, the son's name is to be Ishmael. And notice that Abram ends up naming him Ishmael as a sign that he received that message from God. God hears. That they themselves would have been reminded, oh, yeah, God hears. He hears our cries. He sees. You see, he heard Sarai's cries of desperation for not being able to conceive. He saw their state. He knew they were childless. He heard their prayers. He saw their desperation. He was present with them the whole time. If only they had remembered that Yahweh hears and Yahweh sees. Do you think they would have made different decisions if they'd had that in their mind all along, that the God that they've been praying to is hearing their prayers and he is seeing their plight and he is with them? He had to deliver that message to them through the maidservant Hagar. She comes back and she says, this God showed up to me and I gave him this name. He's the God who sees. And he told me to name my child. He hears. God hears. And every day after that, as Ishmael would have grown up and Abram and Sarah would have seen him and called his name Ishmael, they were saying, God hears. Remember that? Ishmael, God hears. God hears. I've got to remember that. And they learned their lesson. They're going to wait. It's 15 more years until Isaac is born. But they wait. Well, the message and the lesson for all three is the same as the message for us. God hears. God sees. You might think of it this way. The same one who showed up to redeem this story is the one who shows up to redeem your story. It is God in the flesh Jesus Christ. He is the God who hears and he is the God who sees. He hears your cries, your silent prayers, your groans, your sighs. He sees your mess, your broken pieces, your disobedience, but he sees it in the context of his loving plan for you. He sees it in the context of doing his work of redemption to clean up the mess and restore to you the promise. You just may have to wait. And by the way, Abram didn't get all his promises this side of eternity, did he? Now, when you find yourself in this story, you see a picture of your brokenness, but you also see a picture of your Redeemer. And so what I want to leave you with and kind of just ask you to think through is how would you live differently if you really believed that God hears you and you really believed that God sees you? How would you live differently? 
How would your life reflect this living communion of being with the God who hears and sees and responds to you? I want to encourage us to start by responding the same way Hagar responded when God showed up in her life. She called upon the name of the Lord. And that's how we're going to close our service this morning is we're going to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, we're going to to worship. This is exactly what he wants us to do, exactly what he calls us to do. So in a minute, I'm going to pray. And after I pray, we're going to sing a song. It's an opportunity for us to call upon the name of the Lord who hears. Here's the thing. The, The words of this song, some of it goes like this. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. You are faithful. God, you are faithful. And there's some of you in the room that you're just not sure right now. And that's okay. Uh, Some of you in the room, you probably can't say those words with any kind of integrity right now. God, you are faithful because it's just, you're just not seeing it. And if that's the case, don't feel like you have to sing. In fact, I'm going to ask all of us just to remain seated for the beginning of this song. And then we'll ask you to stand midway through. But here's why I want you to all remain seated is I want to be sensitive. There's some of you that just can't sing those words right now. But those who can, those that have the faith right now to believe that God is faithful, either because he's shown up in your past or he's showing up in your present, or you just believe he's going to, I want you to sing. And I want you to sing loud. And I want you to sing for the ones who can't this morning. And I want us to be the body of Christ for one another as we proclaim, God, you are faithful. God, you are faithful. Bow your heads. Let's do this. Father, we cannot know your plan. You only give us tiny little glimpses, just enough to take the next step. And sometimes, God, just all of us in this room, if we're honest, we just we take steps that are apart from your plan. And, and sometimes it's because we're hurting sometimes it's because we're afraid sometimes it may be because we're angry at you or bitter at you sometimes it's because we just don't know and yet father you're the god who hears and you're the god who sees you hear and you see enough to send your own son to enter into our mess to show up to call us by name to speak to us to remind us of the promises to to give us new life and for those of you that, that, that say yeah Jesus has shown up in my life at some point in time and I put my faith in him my prayer is that you would give them the faith even this morning to proclaim God you are faithful God you are faithful for those who can't say that, either because they, they don't yet believe or they do believe, but just right now they, they, they just are struggling. Would you give them the faith this morning to join into this chorus? And for all of us who would call upon the name of the Lord, would you help us to know that you hear even now, even today, even in this song, you hear. In Jesus' name we pray.